Good afternoon, dear yogis. How are you holding up? In a minute, I'm going to uh, see if anybody wants to tell us anything they learned about uh, orienting the walking meditation from the head or the heart or the belly. Um, but first of all, I want to reassure those of you who may be thinking, I'm just trying to feel like a step, <laughs> like where it orients from. That's way beyond where I'm at right now. I want to reassure you that you are cool anyway. And I can tell you how I know. Recently, last summer I think it was, I read a um, New York Times article about a new fad. It's called silent walking. <laughs> and the idea is that you go for a walk without uh, earbuds or listening to a podcast. You just go for a walk. <laughs> but it's a fad. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we used to call it, yeah, going for a walk. <laughs> it's like um, the fad um, of wild swimming. And that's swimming in like a lake. <laughs> we just used to call that swimming. And then swimming in a pool was like, you know. But anyway, silent walking. So you guys are cool. Um, you're uh, uh, getting with the times and the fads. And I think we're even doing an advanced version of silent walking here because we're not going anywhere, so not only, <laughs> not only have we given up our earbuds and our podcasts and our phone conversations while we're walking, we're actually not going anywhere, we're just walking back and forth. So, yeah, you're doing well, and you're going to have a real skill when you go back out in the world. So does anybody feel like saying anything about um, the experience with orienting towards the walking from the mind or the heart or the belly? Does any, did anybody learn anything or did anything interesting come out of it that you dare to share? Yes? Um, are, we, are we just talking with Max? You can take it off just to say this if you'd like. Yeah. Um, you know, at first I was noticing kind of some neuroses of like, what's the right one you know, to find? Uh, which I tend not to kind of be that way so much about like finding the right, but I was doing it with that. And, but I think, or I, my head was kind of like that neurotic energy, mm -hmm. like, because it feels less rooted. And then the heart is kind of the emotional which it can even be less rooted than the valid, like real, earthy, grounded kind of energy. Um, so if there was like, oh, there could be fear or whatever, the emotion versus the embodiment, maybe, is one way I was kind of playing. That's great, yeah. So the mind was kind of scattered, I think is what you're saying, and that you weren't really here, orienting through the mind. And then you dropped into the heart, and you said that there were different emotions that you felt. Yay! So <laughs> you're coming down to earth, right? Like, to, oh, what's really happening here is, oh, there's some sadness. Or, 
and then um, kind of more rootedness coming down into the valley. Beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. And there was a hand behind you, I think, was there? Okay, we'll do two people and then, then we'll move on to the top. But go ahead, Spruce, yeah. some manifestation of compassion or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, it was sweet. Sweet. Hmm? Yeah. Mm -hmm. A sweet landing on this <laughs> earth. <laughs> Sometimes it's sweet. Sometimes it's more turbulent or um, sorrowful. Do you have one more? Mm -hmm. uh, I'm really resonant with all of that. We're walking in the park. I really enjoy dancing. That's something that I very much enjoy. So Could you speak up a little bit? I really enjoy direct. dancing. That's something that really brings joy to my heart. And I found when I was walking from the heart, I would kind of like move a little more rhythmically and kind of get kind of like have that come out. But that would also kind of distract me from actually doing mm -hmm. my this sometimes. Mm -hmm. I like more of like kind of just walking a little bit of dance rather than just kind of. Kind of feeling like grooving more, maybe. <laughs> Great. So for every one of us, you know, there'll be nuances, um, and just ex the, the exploration is is the journey, right? Like what what happens? How does the mindfulness change when we orient from different places, or how does presence change when we orient from? different places and what we can even ask given what you said what's the most useful kind of orientation um, for me sometimes the heart might be just what you need you might need a little grooving because your energy is kind of flagging right but other times it might be too much and distracting and um, orienting from a different place might be supportive yeah, I feel like all of this exploration that I assigned um, is, is related to uh, receptivity and it's related to um, getting grounded in the body. I think that most people find that as we go further down from the head to the heart to the belly that there's greater receptivity and less kind of activity. I notice myself that when the energy's in the in the mind, that I'm kind of propelled into action. There's that very active mode to do something, and then as I settle into the heart or deeper into the belly, there's more a sense of being and receiving and landing here on this earth, which is uh, what we're trying to do. I read recently in um, the Tricycle magazine. Who said this? I should tell you. I don't know. I ripped out the page. Andrew Holosek. He said, 
Waking up is common parlance on the path, but it's more like waking down. Instead of looking up to the heavens, do a face plant onto the earth. <laughs> I'm guessing that some of you have done a face plant today. You know, that, that first day can kind of feel like that. It's like, whoop, <laughs> whoa. <laughs> Really feel the soil in your eyes and you'll finally mix dirt with divinity. I like that dirt with um, divinity. Yeah, so we're just trying to figure out how to arrive here. Last year I may have I used this uh, um, example. I, I can't remember anymore. But um, if I did, there's a new twist afterwards for those of you who've heard this before. So a few years ago, or a couple years ago, I, ha- I saw um, an ad on my uh, iPad. And um, it fell into the realm of what I call anti-dharma, <laughs> which I thoroughly, well, I, I kind of enjoy and I kind of despair. It's a, com- it's a combination of the two. So this was an air freshener commercial, and I don't know how I got it because I very dislike air fresheners, and you would think they would know that by now. But anyway, <laughs> a person, um, uh, there's this uh, vista, background vista of mountains and uh, a wide view, kind of um, Wyoming or something like that, right? And a person um, gets in the car, turns on the car, and the voiceover says, this is what freedom sounds like. And then they put an air freshener in the car, and the voiceover says, this is what freedom smells like. And it really tunes into our popular ideas about what freedom is. We don't think doing a face plant into the earth is exactly freedom. <laughs> we think, you know, freedom is getting to go where you want, getting away from things, right? And um, and kind of covering up what might not be so beautiful with what's more pleasant. So more pleasant, cover up the unpleasant, ignore it, um, pretend it's not there, um, mask it. So it's really playing on that. But in Buddhism, we, we do have a different idea of what freedom is. So with freedom, we don't, we don't need to go anywhere. And we don't need to mask except for COVID. <laughs> but we don't need to, to mask the unpleasant and have life just hopefully try to be pleasant. But rather, we're, we're, we're trying to come down to earth um, into uh, an ability to hold it all. The 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. So you may have had one or the other more today. You may have both. You may have had neither. You might have been sleepy, restless, doubting, tired. We learn how to um, hold it all. So the follow-up story to this, it comes from Sharon Salzberg's book, Real Life. Um, and this also came out of the Tricycle magazine. So she, this is what Sharon says. She's talking about Joseph Goldstein, kind of one of the preeminent uh, Buddhist teachers in, in this country. Joseph struck up a conversation with a young man working behind the counter. I think they were in... Um, 
like New Mexico or somewhere. I'm not sure where, but not here. Oh, Houston. They were in Houston. After a few minutes, he told Joseph that he'd never left Houston and went on to describe somewhat passionately how his dream was to one day go to Wyoming. When Joseph asked him what he thought he would find there, he responded, open, expansive space, a feeling of being unconfined with peacefulness and freedom and room to move. Joseph responded, there's an inner Wyoming too, you know. At that point, the young man fixed to stare at Joseph and said, that's freaky, as he sighed <laughs> away. <laughs> That's freaky. <laughs> so, so kind of paradoxically, this this coming down to earth helps us discover our inner Wyoming. Helps us discover the the the, the space and the freedom to move and the expansiveness. But we don't go straight right there. <laughs> we have to. Um, we have to recover what we've exiled, what we haven't um, included. That's that's the that's the face plant. Actually, is um, is the integration of um, anything that we've left out. I've been reading Thomas Merton lately. And this is what he has to say about something like that. It's called the inner experience, the chapter this comes from. The first thing that you have to do before you start thinking about such a thing as contemplation, what he calls meditation actually, is to try to recover your basic natural unity. To reintegrate your compartmentalized being into a coordinated and simple whole and learn to live as a unified human person. This means that you have to bring back the fragments of your distracted existence so that when you say I, there is really someone present to support the pronoun you have uttered. So this coming down to earth is a, is a reintegration and, and I don't think, I think Chaz is going to agree with me on this one, but I don't think you can do that only in the mind. You know, if we get lost in our minds, they're, they're so slippery and they make up so many things. They're pretty unreliable, actually. I mean, on one level, yes. On a rel relative level, yes, you can rely on your mind. Well, as you get to be mugging, you start to wonder. But um, <laughs> more or less, we can rely on our mind, right? But as far as kind of like our, our understanding of who we are and how the world is, um, we have to come down to earth and journey through the heart and down into the belly and down into the earth. Uh, because we're going to find what the mind has distorted or ignored or exiled through that journey. And you could say that that's one reason why you know we keep um, pointing towards this 
sense experience and towards the receiving of the sense experience. This receiving of our sense experience is intimacy with who we are. And it's this intimacy that reintegrates us and, and I think kind of turns us into more decent human beings <laughs> and hopefully a little wiser and compassionate at the same time. I said to Chaz at lunch, I said, did I talk about intimacy with all things last year? He's like, ah, doesn't matter, you can never hear it too much. <laughs> I may have talked about it last year. I talk about it a lot, this saying of um, the Zen master Dogen that uh, awakening is intimacy with all things. That's what we're um, aiming, aiming, that's funny, that's such an active word. <laughs> that's what we're aiming towards with our um, receptivity is intimacy. Because what happens um, with the active mind, so the receptivity tends to come more from the heart and the belly, and the act, active mind more from, or the active more from the mind. The active mind creates um, separation from this world. We do this through conceptualizing. We, we. Um, you could say we other the world through our minds. We make things discrete, separate, out there phenomena. And there's a good reason for it. It's so we can manage things. Like it's, our, it's how we um, survive on some level. Is, but we tend to overmanage. <laughs> we tend to um, meddle just a bit too much. So the active mind meddles a lot. Have you noticed that? <laughs> Lots of meddling going on today, I'm assuming. Meddling with reality or meddling with life as it manifests. And um, that, that meddling or that separation creates a certain alienation from intimacy with all things. And so we try to... Um, settle down into the heart, the body, the sense experience, our sensed, alive, sensed experience for this intimacy that feels like coming home. It feels like um, healing alienation. It feels like making us whole, like um, Thomas Merton was talking about. And then from that place of, of intimacy and settledness and connectedness, we start to see the world um, more as it is and less as we want it to be, or more as it is and less how we fabricate it to be. We start to see more clearly the machinations of our mind. We see the meddling more clearly. They're like, I want this, I don't want that. How can I make this be this way? How can this serve me? How can I get rid of that? Like all of that um, very human meddling that uh, feels like profound and basic human restlessness. 
and we know that as alienation, we know that as suffering. And so we get simpler. We're trying to get simpler and simpler and simpler, which is like the hardest thing to do. By coming back to just this body sitting, just this breath moving, just this one step, this step, and this step, just the taste of garlic bread. It's so funny, at lunch I'm eating the garlic bread and I watch my mind get very active around the garlic bread, like should I get more, can I get more, I like this garlic bread. (laughs) So I caught that, right? And then I was like, ah, no, settle back, receive the garlic bread. (laughs) There's quite a difference, right? between eating the garlic bread while I ponder whether I'm going to have a second piece or strategize. Actually, I did have a second piece. (laughs) That was good. I love garlic bread. Um, But there's a difference, right, between that experience of the active mind meddling with the garlic bread and the receptive heart that receives the garlic bread that actually experiences the taste of the garlic bread. So with that intention for receptivity, then we see the meddling more clearly. And that's really one of the benefits of receptive um, mindfulness is that we, we start to see. Because if, if our mindfulness, it's good to have active mindfulness at times, if our, you know, our, but if our mindfulness is like, I'm going to go out and taste this garlic bread. Um, sometimes that can hide the grasping and aversion. They can hide in the activity of it, the activeness. But when I sit back and just receive the taste of the garlic bread, then I see my mind, ooh, you know, what's up? More garlic bread. And and we can almost feel that as a basic alienation, that movement towards more garlic bread is alienation from this moment of the taste of the garlic bread and my embeddedness in this world as it manifests in this moment through taste. There's intimacy in that tasting and receiving that tasting intimacy with garlic bread. <laughs> but that's that's my life at that moment, right? And there's intimacy with that moment of life. So there's 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 a healing of alienation, but there's also this um, healing of of well, this is alienation, but it's another way of putting it in a more Buddhist way. It's a, it, we start the healing of the grasping and aversion that takes us away from our basic um, peacefulness as embodied humans on this planet. I haven't looked in my notes yet. Where are we at? <laughs> so much fun. Sometimes I say we're trying to release the, the cognitive grip, right? Like it feels like 
Vinny and I had that experience today where it was like the cognitive grip. It's like the mind is like, ah, ah, think, 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 think. Um, and we always have this opportunity, though, that's so great to drop into our sense experience, whether it's body sensations, tasting, hearing, seeing, smelling, or feeling the, the heart-mind directly, like feeling the heart, right? Not as an idea, but actually as a feeling. It's so simple. That's part of its beauty. And with the receptive mindfulness, we're really understanding that we don't that we don't have to try as hard as we tend to try. We come to meditation, right, and we're like, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. And um, it's really more uh, settling back. The blind, a French resistance fighter, Jacques Luceron, expressed in his autobiography, which is worth reading, <laughs> and there was light, that's the autobiography. Being blind, he says, I thought I should have to go out and meet things, but I found that they came to meet me instead. I have never had to go more than halfway. There's that receptivity. And that that life comes to us. We don't have to go out and find it, right? We can um, rest in receptivity and let life come to us. Here's a Minnesota story for you. Uh, notice how I say Minnesota and like my accent comes out. <laughs> it always happens for you. My Minnesota story for you. Um, <laughs> when I was young, uh, my dad used to take me and my siblings uh, camping in um, some land in Moore, Minnesota, about an hour and a half north of Minneapolis. Um, and it was undeveloped land, a friend of his owned. And we would uh, run around, and uh, there were eight of us, and we'd bring a friend each. So we'd have about 15 kids running around and playing capture the flag and um, in the woods and having campfires and some of my better memories. But what I liked to do most was an, a, a, an exercise I called finding myself. And I would go to a meadow nearby, and uh, this was in my early teens. And I would sit in the meadow under a tree, and I would try to find myself. And what I figured out was that if I spent a lot of time in, in the mind, thinking about things, I didn't feel like I found myself. But if I spent time um, hearing and smelling and seeing and feeling my body, I felt like I called it finding myself. It's kind of was early, my early Vipassana experiences. <clears throat> so I know it's funny as Buddhists to talk about finding ourselves, right? Everybody's like, wait a moment, what about not self? <laughs> <laughs> but what we find 
is that this self, that what we call ourselves, is alive and vibrant and changing and embedded and interconnected, which are all um, understandings of not-self. We discover that we don't exist as an independent, controllable, separate being, which is our usual understanding of self, but rather as an um, this being that's able to um, be touched and able to touch life and be touched by life. And that's not separate. That's also not controllable and manageable. That's, that's the other side that we explore, right? You sit down, we're trying to like control this being, and then we, then we find out that it um, unfolds in, according to plans, different maybe than the ones that we have. It reminds me of last May when I flew to um, Ohio to teach and my luggage did not make it. And um, the airline sent me a text and it said, we are sorry, but your luggage did not arrive as intended. (laughs) (laughs) I loved that phrase. First of all, I thought, how many people spent how long figuring out that language? <laughs> but but what we see is that life doesn't unfold as intended, right? And that 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 our journey is like how do we learn to move through that with grace? And even peace and even joy. Yeah, that's what we're trying to learn. And we do that by coming back over and over again to um, receiving whatever the present life moment offers us. The author Susan Murphy, an um, Australian Zen teacher, she says, accept all offers. So we're trying to learn how to <coughs> accept all offers. Apparently this comes from improv um, theater where if you're doing an improv uh, scenario, if somebody you know, offers you something as, as an actor, if you reject it, you just end the, the if there's, you know, there's nowhere to go. But if you accept all offers and then you figure out what to do with the offer, offer that came to you, then, it, then things move on. So we're trying to learn how to accept all offers. And um, here's a way that uh, Suzuki Roshi has something to say about it. So this comes from the book, um, mm, 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 Brown, I think his last name. Anyway, it's a Zen person (laughs) wrote this book about, uh, it was a Zen cook, Tassahara cook. Ed Brown, that was his name, wrote this book. He says, when I was the cook at Tassahara back in the 60s, when we were just starting up at Tassahara, We were sitting in our temporary zendo and began having meals in the zendo for the first time. 
Before that, we had family-style meals at tables. At the family-style breakfast, we would serve hot cereal and put out white sugar, brown sugar, and honey because some people didn't want to be eating sugar. Sugar is bad for you. It's too yin, the macrobiotics would say. There were also people who didn't like honey, so we served molasses. You wouldn't want to deny anyone what they wanted. Everyone should have what he wants, right? That's the American way. Have it your way, the way you want it to be. So then he started to talk about how in the, in the Zendo, um, they pass these condiments along, and they all eat in a group and pass these condiments along, but then it became problematic, like you couldn't wait for the condiments to go through all the people, so they had sets of condiments to pass through, like different number of people, but then each set had like about eight or nine different things because you wouldn't want to disappoint anyone. And then it was just a disaster afterwards. They'd have, they'd have 120 little dishes that they would have to clean. And uh, <laughs> so it, it started to get a little out of control. It said, we, yeah, we found that we wanted one set of condiments for every three people, so there were 45 people, so 15 sets of condiments with eight different dishes each. After the second or third morning we had done this, somebody came out to those who were serving the meal and said, Suzuki Roshi would like to give a lecture. Please come into the meditation hall before you go to the kitchen to clean up and have your own breakfast. Suzuki Roshi said, I don't really understand you Americans. When you put so much milk and sugar on your cereal, how will you taste the true spirit of the grain? Why don't you taste the true nature of each moment instead of trying to make everything taste just the way you want it to? Why don't you taste your own true spirit? What, did you think you could add milk and sugar to each moment of your life to make it taste the way you want? I love it. <laughs> this is a Buddhist truth. There's no way to get moment after moment to be according to your taste. It's not your fault. It can't be done. It's not because of your lack of skill or lack of trying or lack of savvy or lack of competence or your lack of self-esteem. It's not your fault that you can't get this moment or the next moment to be to your liking. That's the first noble truth. It can't be done. Not even enlightenment will help you have everything according to your taste. So go ahead and taste the truth of the moment, the true spirit of the grain, the true nature of sadness or sorrow, the true nature of grief, the true nature of being, the true nature of joy, of pleasure, of happiness, of delight, of love. Go ahead and taste it and let the taste come home to your heart and digest it. Take it in and digest what you are eating, what you are experiencing. That's receptive mindfulness. So we're taking in the taste of this moment. We're receiving it and digesting it, letting it um, impact us and being impacted by it. So all of this happens uh, through a certain kind of softening, right? I bet you're hearing that. I hope you're hearing that. And we're really just trying to learn how to soften. 
the active mind tends to be a little on the brittle side, a little bit on the hard side, right? And so receptivity is soft. And there's this um, comp- such a beauty in that. I call it exquisite vulnerability, and I might even do a whole talk on it later in the week. Um, but there is a vulnerability through softening, and that's where the rub is. That's where we're not so sure about this. That's where we're um, a bit concerned. <laughs> and so we're actually trying to increase our um, vulnerability tolerance, our, our, our willingness to be touched by life, our willingness to let life in. Paul, uh, Paul Shepard, an uh, eco-something, eco-philosopher, ecologist, he said, um, to, he has this great book called uh, New World, New Self, Recovering Our Senses in the 21st Century. He said to um, be present in the world means to make room for the world to be present in you. Hmm. To be present in the world means to make room for the world to be present in you. So room for ourselves to be touched by life. All of it. (laughs) The taste of the moment. Dogen, um, the the great Zen master from the 13th century said, let things come and abide in your heart. Let your heart respond. Let your heart go out and abide in things. That's not self. Right, and it's, it's, it's both ways. It's not separate. So softening, back to softening. I've learned a lot about softening from Qigong. So I started practicing, I don't know how many years, maybe 15 years ago. And um, the first instruction we received, I I, I studied in a very kind of detail-oriented, a very... um, uh, uh, lineage deeply uh, embedded in tradition. My teacher studied with somebody who had studied in China for a lot of time. And uh, so it moves really slow, way too slow for somebody like me. But it was exactly what I needed. And the first instruction was we were trying to learn how to stand. You'll get more of this tomorrow from Chaz. And um, the first instruction was soften the back of your knees. And so I, was, I, was, I had the intention to soften the back of my knees and um, my mind said, you've got to be kidding. Like that was a thought that went through my mind. It was like, no freaking way. Because <laughs> it felt so vulnerable. That 
softening, right? So I spent a year learning how to soften the back of my knees. I'm still learning to soften the back of my knees. I'm better. I don't, my mind doesn't say no freaking way anymore. <laughs> so we've made progress in 15 years. Um, that's really a lifelong task to learn how to soften into this world. So another thing about my Qigong uh, tradition is they have this rule called the 70% rule. And you're only supposed to make 70% of the effort that you can. So you're only supposed to stretch 70% as far as you could. And when they first told me this rule, my thought was, I'm not a 70% kind of gal. I'm a 105% kind of gal. That rule is for everybody else, <laughs> not me. <laughs> kind of arrogant, I know. Um, and so, uh, you know, I would just like, <laughs> and then after a while, I would like, oh, let's see what 70% was like, it's like, you know, so I would kind of back off. And, and inevitably, when I would back off to 70%, I would start to feel something. So I was trying to bypass the heart with that, right? So backing off, softening, not pushing. We start to feel what we've exiled, what we haven't let in through the more active, hard stance, right? And it's so great. And it's hard. Right? It's hard. In the Lions War magazine from a few years ago, here's a little description of meditation. The meaning of meditation is intense lightness. Meditation is intense because the practice is demanding. At the same time, the practice of meditation is very light because you have nothing to do and nothing to accomplish. So intense lightness or intense freedom is a meaning of meditation. But it's intense and it's demanding. As you already know, I didn't have to tell you that. But I'm confirming that it's okay if it's intense and demanding. We exiled parts of our being for a good reason. We weren't ready to let it in. So we're practicing. Now we're stronger. We're practicing letting it in. So we have active mindfulness, which is good. Like at times you have to figure out how to manage what's going on here, right? If it's kind of out of control, you have to say like, oh yeah, I need to do something here to get myself back into balance or to survive. <laughs> it can feel like we're going to die sometimes. So um, you, you, you do active things, and we'll be giving suggestions about what those might be. And many of you know them from years of practice. And sometimes you pull that out. 
you make interventions right. for yourself. And at other times, you settle back and receive and allow. And they're both valid and important parts of our practice. They're both valid and important parts of our being. We all have the, the active and the receptive being, or sometimes I say the mind and the heart. We listen to our minds a lot. Now we're trying to see if we can also listen to our hearts. The hearts have a lot to share and to tell us, a lot of intelligence that we um, overlook in our dependence on the mind. So here, you know, we're going to try to get the mind to rest. It doesn't like to rest, I admit it. Um, but we're going to attempt to like, let the mind rest, you know, sometimes for a few moments and uh, let the heart have some, um, some game time, some, what's the expression, some... Uh, speaking time? Speaking time, some time, yeah. And then the belly, the belly has a whole other kind of intelligence. So we're listening. Another way we can talk about receptive mindfulness is to say listening. We're listening to our life. We're listening to our sense experience. We're listening to our bodies. We're listening to our hearts. And we're letting them teach us about the way things are. So the deeper wisdom, or not deeper, one other kind of wisdom from from the receptive mindfulness is the wisdom of um, impermanence, dukkha, and not self. Like the nature of reality becomes more apparent to us when we receive than when we're active. So that's what I mean when I say we let life teach us how life is. It's such a beautiful journey. have a sentence here. With receptive mindfulness, we become co-participants with the world rather than managers of life. Co-participants with the world. You can hear the healing of the alienation in there, right? And the deep embeddedness, interconnectedness, and not self-nature of who we are. Well, it's becoming time to come to a close with our talk for this afternoon. Let your heart go out and abide in things. Let things return and abide in your heart.
Being embodied answers our heart's yearning to come home. Our home on this planet is this very body, and dropping from the dissociated world of thought into the alive world of our senses, we land fully here, a dynamic human being on this earth. We recognize that we belong here, that we are met here, and the invitation always stands to come home. Let's sit for a minute. So that was a lot of words for a practice of dropping into the body, right? So the trick with Dharma talks is, was there one or two things that resonated for you that feel like they would be helpful for your practice? And you know, to bookmark those. A couple of things, two is plenty. One is enough. And then we let the rest of the words float away. We get simple. We trust that we have what we need, that we have received what we need. We trust life itself. Yeah.